L'chaim, everybody. L'chaim. It's just water, don't worry. When I was a teenager, I studied in a Chabad school in Johannesburg, South Africa, where I'm from. I should point out, by the way, my real yichas is that I'm Mrs. Solish's brother. In the Chabad school in Johannesburg, one morning, we were visited by a professor by the name of Professor Velvel Green. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He's a fantastic biologist, um, did some work for NASA, actually. I remember it because that was the morning I learned about NASA. And Professor Velvel Green came to talk to us about his own journey in coming to Judaism, in coming to Chabad, and in particular, he wanted to talk to us about his first encounter with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he told us the following story. He said, I was scheduled for a meeting with the Rebbe on one particular night at 1 o'clock a.m. This was standard business in the Rebbe's schedule. So I arrived early at 11.30 p.m. And the first thing I noticed is that everybody in Crown Heights was wearing a black hat, something roughly like this. And in my great shame, I realized I had no black hat and decided I could not go in to see the Rebbe without a black hat. So I combed the streets of Crown Heights, looking everywhere desperately for someone to give me, sell me, lend me. I was ready to beg, borrow, and steal a black hat couldn't find one anywhere. In those days, there was only one store in Crown Heights that sold black hats. It was located somewhere on that famous Kingston Avenue, but nobody ever saw it open. Just a couple of black hats in the window, that's it. So in his desperation, he told us he stopped somebody in the street and says, where do I get a black hat? Come on, man, you got to help me. And he was told that he could go downstairs to the Rebbe's very, very large shul. And all the way in the back, there's something called a pile of Seamus. These were old prayer books and old talesim that were no longer in use. They couldn't actually be discarded, so they were piled up in the back of the room, waiting to one day be buried. And at the bottom of the pile, they told him, you'll find a black hat that nobody wants. So he went to the back of the shul, and he looked under the pile, and exactly where he was told, there was a black hat. And with great pride, he put it on and walked into the room of the Lubavitcher Rebbe for his first meeting. Now, I'm not going to get into the all the details of his background, but he had been in correspondence with the Rebbe for many years, but this was the first time they met face to face. And he walks in and he's so proud of this hat. And the Rebbe looks straight at him. And the Rebbe says, quote, Shalom Aleichem, Professor Green. So he says, Aleichem Sholem. Professor Green says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, do you have a Yarmulke? Do you have a kippah? He says, well, I had a kippah, but now I have a black hat. I don't have my kippah on me anymore. So the Rebbe opened his drawer, removed the kippah, gave it to Professor Green and said, and here I quote, Professor Green, Please take off that hat and put on this yarmulke 
because I cannot talk to you and keep a straight face as long as you're wearing that black hat. Close quote. He went on for 30 minutes to discuss what it was that he felt the Rebbe meant with those words. Why the Rebbe insisted that he not wear the black hat and wear the yarmulke. And of course, the Rebbe said it in jest. But we believe that no word that comes out of the Rebbe's mouth is ever truly intended to be just jest. Why did the Rebbe say, take off the hat, put on the yarmulke, I can't talk to you with a straight face as long as you're wearing that hat. Professor Green explained to us that what the Rebbe was trying to teach him that day was that in order to be a Jew and a proud Jew, in order to be in this particular case a chassid and a proud chassid, the idea was not to put on someone else's garb or someone else's outfit. The idea was not to try to be someone else who you, who you do not feel comfortable with intrinsically. As a Jew, the Rebbe was trying to teach him to be true to his essence, and that, as you heard in this video, everything he was looking for, he would find within himself. Don't change who you are. Just keep digging inside yourself. I'll share with you another story that I heard also, from the, as they say in Hebrew, from the Baal HaMaisa, from the person to whom it happened. This particular story took place, I heard, again, I heard the story from the person to whom it happened, with the principal of a school. The principal of a Jewish school, actually, of a Chabad school. I don't know how many of you have the pleasure to work with Jews on a regular basis. Excuse me. It can get pretty tiring. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have the pleasure of dealing with religious Jews on an ongoing basis. They're particularly complicated human beings. <laughs> I like that, you like my joke. It's, it's Hashem's sense of humor. It's the way it goes. This particular individual was running a school. Where's my sister when I need her? This particular guy was running, this particular rabbi was running a school and life was getting tough. Consider what he's got to deal with. Number one, kids with issues. This is the 60s. Number two, parents with issues. Number three, Kids with issues because their parents have issues. Number four, teachers with issues. Number five, a community with issues. Number six, no money. Number seven, every now and then his kids ask him the eternal question that my kids ask me, which is, Tati, what do you actually do for a living? <laughs> Nobody really knows what he does. So on one fine day, he decided to quit. Wise man. He said, I've had enough. Kanuksha. No, how long can this go on? He decided he was done. So he got onto a train and he rode from Montreal to New York, where his school was, to where the Rebbe was, to schedule for himself a personal audience with the Rebbe, to tell the Rebbe, finished. You can't quit before you let the boss know. So he arrives in New York Thursday morning and he walks into the office of the Rebbe's secretary. May his soul rest in peace. His name was Rabbi Chadakov. And he walks in and he says, Rabbi Chadakov, I know the Rebbe sees people for private audience tonight, Thursday night. I'd like to schedule for myself a Yechidus, a private audience, tonight. Now Rabbi Chadakov was a wise man and he had fantastic intuition. And he could smell a rat. 
kids. That's not an actual rat. That means he could, he could smell that there was a problem. So he looked at his schedule and he said, I'm so sorry, Rabbi from Montreal. The Rebbe has no time to see you tonight. Hoping to buy some time till the guy will cool off a little bit. The secretary says no. No is no. So the rabbi from Montreal walks out of the Rebbe's secretary's office, sits down in shul, and writes a note to the Rebbe. In this note, he writes, Rebbe, I've come here from Montreal, and I'd like to see you. But here's the chokhmah. He doesn't tell the Rebbe what he wants to talk to him about, just that he wants to see him. Folds the paper, puts it in an envelope, and hands it to the secretary, addresses it to the Rebbe. The wisdom of this was that the secretaries were never allowed to refuse letters. They weren't even allowed to open them. So the secretary takes the pile of mail into the Rebbe, comes out a couple of hours later, finds the rabbi in shul and says, the Rebbe will see you tonight. You're last on the list. Be here at 11.30 p.m. sharp. So he showed up at 11 p.m. sharp, and the secretary told him, the Rebbe's running behind schedule. This was very typical for the way things worked. It seems like you'll go in around midnight. Midnight turned to 12.15. 12.15 turned to 12.30. And at 12.30, he put his hands on the Rebbe's door handle and walked into the Rebbe's room. He closed the door, and it's just the two of them. And the Rebbe looked at him and smiled and said, OK, you've outsmarted the system. You're here. How can I help you? Clearly, you've got something on your mind. Clearly, something is weighing on your heart. I'm all ears, said the Rebbe. Talk to me. So the rabbi from Montreal, the principal of the school, who's been dealing with abuse and issues and stuff, for years, let all of the pent-up frustration and pain that he'd been carrying around for so long come out in one moment. And he said, Rebbe, I'm here to tell you that I quit. I'm done. I've done my best. I've tried hard. I've worked for so long. Anybody here speak Yiddish? Ganug is Ganug. Right? Enough is enough. Speak Yiddish? No? All right. I'll talk to your principal. Ganug is Ganug, he said. It's finished. How long can I bear this for? I'm done. I quit. Now you have to understand, the Rebbe would answer, generally speaking, at lightning speed. The reason for that is because truth is completely integrated. The soul, the body, the intellect, the emotion, the mind, the heart, it's all completely integrated. So it, it isn't necessary for there to be time to process, the responses were, generally speaking, immediate. The Rebbe says to him, in Yiddish, of course, the Rebbe says to him, who's going to take over? You say you quit. Who will take your place? The Rabbi said, the Rebbe's question caught me off guard because it was the one thing I didn't think about. So I told the Rebbe in the nicest way possible, I don't know. And I don't care. It doesn't matter. Whoever is stupid enough to take over can have the job. Pajalista. With pleasure. It's all yours. 
I'm ready to leave tomorrow. I'm done. So the Rebbe's expression became serious. And the Rebbe looked at him and pointed to the clock and said, what time is it? He said, well, he came in at 12.30. So far, the conversation had taken about 90 seconds. It's about 12.31 and a half. The Rebbe said, you know, my father-in-law, said the Rebbe, my wife's father, who was the previous Rebbe of Lubavitch, once told me a vort. He once told me, gave me a nugget of wisdom. You see, Rebbe's, see people at all hours of the day and night. Says the Rebbe to this rabbi from Montreal, mein Schwer, my father-in-law told me that the hour between 12 and 1 is a narish ashore. It's a foolish hour. I don't know what happens, says the, says the Friedrich Rebbe to the Rebbe. The clock strikes 12 and everybody starts talking nonsense. It's like a twilight zone. Until 12, they're all coherent and clear. We have intelligent conversation, and things are fantastic. The clock strikes 12, they're still standing there, their mouths are moving, but stupidity is coming out of their mouths. For exactly one hour, from 12 to 1, this goes on. The clock strikes 1, and boom, all of a sudden, everybody's coherent and normal again. Amazing. The Rebbe repeated this to the rabbi. He said, my father-in-law warned me about this. He told me that between 12 and 1, people talk nonsense. But even after my father-in-law's warning, I would have never imagined that I would be hearing such nonsense as the nonsense you're speaking right now. What kind of talk is this? You see, I think, this is just my own interpretation here, I think the reason for that is because until 12 o'clock, People still have energy from the day. You know, their minds are still going. From 1 o'clock, it's already the next day. So they get a second win. But somewhere between 12 and 1, they're just a bunch of walking zombies. That's my own interpretation. But be it as it may, the Rebbe said to him, I, my father-in-law, warned me about this. Between 12.30 and 1, it's garbage out of people's mouths. But, says the Rebbe, I have a disclaimer to make. Even after my father-in-law warned me about the nonsense I hear between 12 and 1, I would have never imagined in my life to hear such nonsense like this. And then he pulled a Rebbe move on him. And he said to him, if I would have known that that's what you came here to tell me, I would not have let you into my office. And he opened his drawer, the famous drawer, next to the Yamalkas. There were some dollars. He pulled out a dollar, he gave it to him, and he said, Hatzlocha Rabba, wishing you much success in your continued work being the principal of the school in Montreal. <laughs> the rabbi took the train Saturday night, went back to Montreal, and remained in office for another 60 years. No exaggeration. Just passed away, actually, very recently. I heard the story from him himself. And with a little bit of chutzpah, in my ever so sweet and non-confrontational way, I said to him, Rabbi, what do you think it means? And he says, come on, it's so simple. It's so obvious. Every person comes into this world with a soul and a mission. There's something we're here to do. It doesn't matter how difficult it is. It doesn't matter how many obstacles are, on the, are there along the way. If you're put into this world to accomplish a mission and to do something, you got to go and do it. 
you don't get to quit. It's not even on the radar. You're entitled to a moment of weakness. You're entitled to a moment of doubt. You're entitled to frustration. And if you're dealing with Jews and religious Jews every now and then, maybe you've got to give a good geshrei. Maybe you've got to give a good shout. But never to quit. Nothing to talk about. Not an option. He said, the Rebbe believed in me even when I didn't believe in myself and charged me with a mission to go and continue working and to persevere past the difficulties. I did, he said to me, and was privileged to have many, many, many years of success. Next, story number three. I love this story. A man once came to the Rebbe and said, Rebbe, no offense, your Hasidim are abyssal meshugah. Your Hasidim are a bit crazy. What do you mean, says the Rebbe? He's, the guy says, look, I get it all. I get that it's important to study Torah. I get that it's important to pray. I get that it's important to have avas Yisrael, love for a fellow Jew. I get, I, I, I understand all these things. They're all fantastic. But your Hasidim are a little bit obsessed with you. Ever talk to Olabavit Chabadnik for more than five minutes? The Rebbe said this, and the Rebbe said that, and the Rebbe went here, and the Rebbe went there, and the Rebbe looked like this, and the Rebbe looked like that, and the Rebbe turned around, and then... I used to give... I used to give a davening shear every morning uh, after davening in a particular Chabad house. And for years we studied, you know, different insights into prayer. And there was one guy there who used to like to make fun of me. So every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, when people used to sit down, start to study about davening, the guy would bang on the table and go, okay, everybody, it's time for Rebbe said this, Rebbe said that, Rebbe said this, Rebbe said that. He was trying to say, that's all that comes out of your mouth. So somebody once complained to the Rebbe and said, Rebbe, you seem like a logical, well-educated, sensible human being. A great leader, notwithstanding, of course. You seem fantastic. But your followers there seem to be a little bit too much. Why don't you go out there one day and tell them to take a walk, <laughs> breathe some fresh air, you know, take... I'm from Los Angeles. Did I mention that? In Los Angeles we say, take a royal chill pill. Right? Just... It's okay. Why are they so obsessed and so wound up? And in particular, he says to the Rebbe, they're so wound up over you. You say something and they run and they jump and they dance and they sing. It's a little too much. Why are your Hasidim so crazy about you? I love the teachings. I think it's fantastic. I'm a proud Jew. I think it's all wonderful. But why so much? And the Rebbe said, I'll tell you why. My Hasidim are crazy over me. I'll tell you why. The reason my Hasidim, said the Rebbe, are crazy over me is because I am crazy over them. Every single one of them. When I see them, I'm obsessed. When I see them, I'm taken by their potential and the greatness and the godliness and the unbelievable potential that I see in every single one of them. And it grips me to the point that I can see nothing else. 
And so when I see them, it awakens something within them. They, I see them in ways that others don't. And I can only hope that because of me, they can learn to see themselves this way. Because I'm so crazy over them, this is why I believe they're so crazy over me. And it's 100% true. I don't know if any of you ever get the chance to go to Jewish organizational dinners. Have any of you ever been to dinners? Yes? Oh, Baruch Hashem. They're all the same. I've sat through many of them. They're all exactly the same. There's food, which, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's better. There is usually the same people talking about the same things, um, sitting at the same tables, um, obsessing over the same stuff, and then, Baruch Hashem, so help me God, there are speeches. <laughs> and speeches, and speeches. <laughs> you know the joke, I have to say this, you know the joke about the keynote address, right? Why, you know why they call it the keynote address? Because when the keynote speaker gets up, they put on the podium, they put a key with a note that says, when you're done, please lock up. Keynote address. <laughs> Every Jewish event has speeches and speeches galore. And just when you think the Rabbanu Shalom has saved us and we're finished with the speeches, they call up the honorees. And by that time, everybody's looking at the door, like literally looking at the door, because they just want to go home and be done with this Rabbanu Shalom Ganug. But the honorees... And the honorees have, and the, every Jewish self-respecting event dinner has at least two honorees, and they get up there with their wives and their sons-in-law and their brothers-in-law and their nephews and their nieces, and they take pictures, and everybody's so excited, and they're gloating with joy. Ah! They've been given, and they always give them that same little blessed present. It's like a plastic engraved piece of, you know, thing that says, you know, thank you so much for dedicating your life to our cause. I'm not talking about any institution in particular, don't worry. <laughs> Thank you so much for dedicating your lives to our, you know, here's a piece of plastic to take home and put on your desk to remember for all eternity how much we appreciate your work. All right. But they're very excited. The honorees are very excited. They, they take this very seriously. And nobody listens to what they have to say because when they're done, everybody can either go home or in the case of the intelligent institutions when they make dinners, they make you wait for dessert until the honorees are finished speaking, which is a particular form of cruel religious abuse. <laughs> that's, a, that's a different discussion. So I, was go, I became a rabbi, a congregational rabbi, and I have to start going to these dinners. And not only that, but I have to thank the people who invite me. Because much as I love to eat dinner, there's no way in God's green earth you're going to get me to pay $360 for a piece of sushi. So other people are going to have to pay for me. And so when I go, I have to say thank you a thousand times. So I do, and I have to schlep my wife. Also, Okay. So we go, and we sit through these dinners, one after another. Schools, shuls, yeshivas, rabbis from out of town, from Israel. From, I was once at, an instant, uh, once at a dinner for a rabbi who came from Venezuela. He has also got a yeshiva, and he's also got money. And everybody comes to Los Angeles to raise money, of course. So... With not much else to do, I was forced 
to listen to other people's speeches. Now, you understand God's sense of humor here, yes? I'm the one that gives the speeches. <laughs> now I have to sit through other people's speeches. And so I did. One after the other, I listened and I listened until one day something hit me and it hit me hard. If you listen to what the honorees say, they actually all say the same thing. These are people who are successful to one degree or another in their field, in their career, financially, or whatever it is. They've experienced success in their own lives. And they all get up and they tell the same life story. And you know what they say? They say, when I started out, I was in a difficult place. I had no money. I had no support. I had no family. I had no connections. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. I started out and I failed. Usually at least two or three times I failed. And it got to a point where I was at a low in my life and I didn't know what to do. I was stuck. And I was worried. And I was scared. And then something changed. And it's almost always, if you pay attention, next time you go to a dinner, you'll think of me. <laughs> and you're welcome. <laughs> but if you pay attention, they all say the same thing. They say that at that painful, dark moment, that moment when the struggle was the greatest, they did not believe in themselves. And it was somebody in their life and somebody in their world who looked at them and said, I believe in you. And that became the turning point. They were able to take courage and strength from somebody who saw them at that vulnerable position in their life and said, I believe in you, you can do it. You can succeed and you can overcome. And the honoree almost always says, that was the turning point in my life. And I overcame my challenges and I succeeded. And then, as in this particular case with the, where I heard the speech and the penny dropped, the individual picked up the gift he'd been given, picked up the piece that they'd honored him with, and he said, I accept it on behalf of my mentor who believed in me in my darkest of hours. And that, my dear friends, is the story of everybody on this world, in this in God's green earth, who has accomplished anything significant in their life, who will tell you in a moment of honesty that they did so because somebody believed in them. And the Rebbe said, they're crazy about me because I'm crazy about them. And what he meant was that he believed in every single Jew who, kept, who walked past his door. He believed in every one of them that they could do something and change the world in a significant way even if they didn't believe in themselves, or I should say, specifically when they didn't believe in themselves. It was the Rebbe who would believe in them and say, I can see potential in you, even when you can't see it in yourself. And this, perhaps, was one of the greatest accomplishments, the greatest gifts the Rebbe gave us. Sometimes we wonder, what would the Rebbe say when things go on in the world today? When bombs are falling in Israel? When 45 Jews, may Hashem protect us, die in a terrible accident in Miron and Lagba Oimer? When things go on around the world 
and we, we find ourselves with our mouths open because we don't understand what's happening. Sometimes we ask ourselves, what would the Rebbe say in a situation like this? The truth is that we don't know. But the truth is that we do know. We don't know exactly what the Rebbe would say. But if the Rebbe would, were here and he, we could hear his holy voice ringing in our ears, I assure you with everything I know and with everything I'm worth, the Rebbe would turn to every single one of us and say, "No, come on. God put you in this world with unbelievable talents and gifts, potentials and ability and time to work. You can make a difference. Are you challenging yourself to do what it is that Hashem wants you to do? Are you waking up every morning with a bounce in your step and energy in your life? Are you underestimating, God forbid, the importance of touching the heart of another Jew? The Rebbe would look at every one of us and give us a dollar or a piece of cake and say, go bring joy and happiness and light to someone else's life. Go and do, go and be active, go and be strong, go and be bold. I believe in you. That's what the Rebbe would tell every one of us. You know the story about the guy who comes to God and says, God, there's so much pain in the world. So many people are suffering. God, how can you allow so many people to hurt and not do anything about it? And God says, oh, I did something about it. I put you in the world. Now stop kvetching and stop complaining and stop telling me what it is that I have to do or how I should and could have created the world differently. I've given you an opportunity to go and do something and you can get busy, roll up your sleeves and work. And if you've come to tell me that, you've, that you want to quit, I won't even let you into my room. Elie Wiesel once, said, once related, the Talmud says that when Joseph, when Yosef HaTzadik, when Joseph had his moment of weakness and he was about to succumb and sin in a grotesque way, the image of his father appeared to him in the window. And just seeing his father challenged him to find within himself the strength to overcome, and he did. Says Elie Wiesel, that's how I get through every dark and challenging moment in my life. He says, if I have to make a decision with regard to anything physical, or anything mundane, or anything material, if it's a choice of career, or place to live, or anything like that, I close my eyes and I imagine to myself, what would my parents, his parents of course were killed in the Holocaust, what would my parents tell me to do? I imagine myself having a conversation with them, and I know what to do. And when it comes to any matter of spirituality, anything that relates to my identity as a Jew and I come to any sort of a crossroads I close my eyes and I relive my own private audiences with the Rebbe and I picture myself standing there asking the Rebbe what to do and I close my eyes and I open my ears and I try to hear what would the Rebbe tell me and like Yosef in his moment of weakness I know what it is that I need to do I want to tell you a personal story so when I was 13 and a half years old, learning in Johannesburg, did I mention that? Learning in Johannesburg, South Africa. My parents sent me to be in the court of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in his shul for the month of Tishrei. This is September 1991. I was there for Yom Kippur. I was there for Sukkot. I was there for Simchas Torah. I got to see 
the Rebbe in action. I saw him dancing in Simchas Torah. I saw him teaching and blessing thousands of his Hasidim. I got to see some of what it was that he did and the way he, the way he touched people's souls. I got to see a little bit of the Avas Yisrael, the unbelievable love that he had for every Jew. I got to see some of it as a child. It made a tremendous, tremendous impact on me. And here's one story. This was on the first day of Sukkot. You know, of course, in the, in the Sukkot, we make a special blessing on a Lulav and an Esrug. Without getting into too many details, the Hasidim had a custom that they were able to make the blessing of the Lulav and Esrug, the blessing over the Lulav and Esrug, on the same Lulav and Esrug that was used by the Rebbe. So the Rebbe would make the blessing in the morning, and then for hours, Hasidim would walk by and get a chance to make a blessing on his Lulav and Esrug. I'm 13 and a half years old, never done this before. An opportunity? All right, I go. They tell me you have to go early. I said, okay, how early is early? Four o'clock in the morning. Four o'clock in the morning? Yeah, all right. So I get there at four o'clock in the morning. Sure enough, I wasn't the only Chacham there who showed up at four o'clock in the morning. There's another 3,000, uh, you know, Hasidim. Did I mention that they're intense? I mentioned that, yes? <laughs> 3,000 of them are there, and we're all waiting in line. Anyways, to cut a long story short, we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And the sun comes up, and we're waiting. And all of a sudden, a murmur kind of shifts through the crowd, through the line. Again, I, I, I was very young, but it seemed to me as if there were two to three thousand people on this line at least. And kind of a murmur, like kind of like, first it starts like sort of as a whisper, and it's just gaining steam. We're being told that for the first time, the Rebbe himself is standing there and watching every person as they make the blessing over the Lulav and the Esrach. Now this is, if this is true, which turned out, by the way, it was true, but if this is true, this is very uncomfortable because it was intimidating, to tell you the truth, to stand in front of the Rebbe. It really was. It was, your knees would kind of knock together and, and you would kind of like hold on and, and the room would kind of swirl around you. It was, it was a very intense experience. And um, this time, the Rebbe is going to stand there and watch. And so as we're standing there and waiting, and, 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 and the line starts to move, and it's confirmed, as soon as you come into the sukkah, to make the blessing on the Lulav and Esrug, you'll come face to face with the Rebbe himself. And so, we did. And my turn came, 13 and a half years old, and Hashem helped me. The person in line in front of me reviewed seven times what it is that you need to do. So I took the lulav in my right hand and I made the right bracha. I took the esrug in my left hand and I made the right bracha. I put them together. I gave them a little shake. And as I made these brachas, I heard the Rebbe say, Baruchu Baruch Shmoy and Amen. Now the whole thing probably lasted five, six seconds, seven seconds. That was it. And then, of course, I got a bit of a nudge, and I was shoved off, and, you know, the human traffic moves on. And somehow, 
don't know exactly how, I kind of got shoved into a corner where there was a whole bunch of other people standing there. And from there, for a couple of minutes, I just watched. Do you see how that guy in the video just described how we're standing a couple of feet? He's Australian, so he said 10 meters. But a couple of feet away from the river and watched it. I had that experience. I was much younger than him. I had that, that experience as a child. And it is true, my friends. It, it, it's true. I was there and saw it as a child. Here was a Rebbe who believed and was willing to invest himself in every single Jew. You know how people who were there say, I stood in front of the Rebbe and the Rebbe looked at me. <laughs> what kind of a story is that? Right? Imagine, I went to somebody and he looked at me. Wow! I talked to him and he listened. You don't say. I asked him a question. He gave me an answer. He asked me a question. I gave him an answer. This is the way people talk. Why do they say that? It doesn't sound particularly intelligent when you repeat it. And most of them in a moment of honesty will tell you that when the Rebbe's holy eyes met yours, you felt like you were being seen like you'd never been seen before or after in your life. And when you talked, I never had the chutzpah to talk to the Rebbe, but if and when you did, other than those two brachas, if and when you did, you felt like you were being listened to like nobody else listens to you in your life. Most human beings go through life and never feel like anybody ever sees them or anybody ever truly listens or notices or really pays attention to who they are and what they are. Most people go through life begging for attention in one form or another. And here was a Rebbe who taught every single one of us by living example what it means to notice, to see, to hear, and to listen, and to pay attention. Rabbi Solish mentioned that he was present at the last time that the Rebbe gave out dollars on a Sunday afternoon. To tell you the truth, so was I. There's a little video that goes around from one of those, from, from that Sunday dollars. You can find it somewhere on YouTube, I think. And the video goes like this. A little girl comes by the Rebbe. Maybe about your, how old are you? About, well, maybe about nine years old, somewhere, somewhere around there. And the Rebbe's giving out these dollars, you know. Do you know, by the way, the only rabbi in history, this is well documented, the only rabbi in history that gave away money, <laughs> Lubavitcher Rebbe. I mean, this itself earns him, you know, a spot in the Hall of Fame. I mean, this is, you know, you, have, you, have, you ever seen that in your life? Oh, would you like an appointment with the rabbi? What's he doing? He's giving out money. Never happened. Anyways, a young girl comes by the Rebbe, and the Rebbe at this stage is 89 years old. And she looks at him, and with a huge smile, she screams loud, Lubavitcher Rebbe, I love you! And everybody standing around, their face falls. <gasps> Oh my God, what, what are you saying? We don't talk that way to the Rebbe. But this was a young girl. And with all the sweetness and innocence and all the pure heartedness of a Jewish child, she said it because she meant it. And to tell you the truth, she was a mouthpiece for a lot of people standing around there too, who would have loved to say the same thing, but couldn't. So the Rebbe gave her a dollar as he did to everybody and wished her blessing and success. 
And then the Rebbe gave her one more dollar and the Rebbe said, this is for the love. And so I feel when I watch this video and think about these stories, that this is something the Rebbe wanted to give every single one of us. He wanted us to have Ahavas Yisrael, love for a fellow Jew. He wanted us to believe in ourselves the way he believed in us. He wanted us to, to, to carry this love, to give it to one more year than to one more experience. He wanted us to notice and, 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 and to listen, to notice another Jew, to find a place in our heart, to celebrate what it is that another Jew brings to the table. And he wanted us more than anything to live in his reality, where every Jew is seen for their neshama, for the, God, for the godliness that is within their souls. I remember the Rebbe singing. I remember the Rebbe dancing. I remember the Rebbe crying. I remember the Rebbe speaking. I remember the Rebbe davening. I remember him on Yom Kippur. I remember him on Sukkot. I remember his face. It left an impression on me as a young child. But more than anything, I remember even as a 13 and a half year old child, I remember being noticed. It's true. When he looked at you, he saw you. So L'chaim, my dear friends, L'chaim, here's to Hashem blessing all of us to be Hasidim, to be Jews, to have that kind of Avas Yisrael, to live with the Rebbe's message, with the Rebbe's teachings every single day, and to always, always see the positive in ourselves and in others. L'chaim.